This is Tell Me What to Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. I'm Nick Wasiliev and I'm thrilled to bring you a special episode this week. For the next two weeks, we'll be releasing a duology of podcasts where Ben Hunter, our fiction guru, chats with debut authors. This is a date with a debut. First up in this series, Ben sits down with Danuka McKenzie, author of fiction thriller set in northern New South Wales, The Torrent. Then Ben sits down with Mary Rose Koskelly, author of the atmospheric and unputdownable crime thriller, The Cane. Check the show notes below for timestamps for both interviews, as well as links to the books mentioned. Now over to Ben's interview with Danuka McKenzie. Hi, I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager, and today, speaking to me through the uh, wonders of the Zoom portal, is Danuka McKenzie. She's an Australian writer and the winner of the 2020 Banjo Prize. Her debut novel is called The Torrent, and I love it. I think it is the perfect piece of crime fiction for fans of Jane Harper or Sarah Bailey. Danuka McKenzie, thanks for being on the pod. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's exciting times. Um, how long have you been writing? What interested you to get started? And what do you look for in a good book? Ooh, a few questions there. Um, <laughs> so in terms of writing, I guess, look, I'm one of these people uh, who had absolutely nil ambitions for writing. Um, the writing in this book is a complete accident as a result of, I guess, uh, me being in the absolute throes of looking after little people and finding that I just needed to carve out a space for myself where I wasn't something that was entirely for, for me, that wasn't me being a mother or a wife or an employee or, a, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know. And so that's kind of really uh, when um, I had my um, second barb, I, I decided to kind of start writing. Um, and I think that came out of sort of a great love of reading, even though I've never sort of, you know, written sort of creatively ever um, be before this. Um, I've always read like that has absolutely been a complete mm. constant in my life from, you know, day, whatever, <laughs> since whenever I could read. So, um, so I think, you know, in terms of trying something new, that seemed the obvious uh, point to start at. So, um, so that's kind of how I started writing. So I think I put the first draft of this down maybe in 2017, I think, yeah, 2016 slash 17, something like that. So, yeah. So, um, and I think in terms of what I like reading, um, very much comfort read is crime fiction. <laughs> I mean, I read widely, but, uh, you know, I would say without a doubt crime fiction and, and in particularly detective fiction, which, you know, is then obviously reflected in, in this book. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's gorgeous detective fiction. Do you have a, a favourite author in, in the realm of detective fiction? Look, I think, you know, in my 20s, I read a lot of Ruth Rendell and, and what I really liked about her writing is it, it's not like it's obviously a police procedural, you know, like with her Wexford series, but it's not um, focused on the nitty gritty of the investigation. So, you know, like the evidence trail and the, you know, the blood splatter and the whatever, whatever. It's more on that psychological why people end up 
you know, how they find themselves in that position and why people do certain things. And I just enjoyed that so much, just kind of traveling through sort of the story with the detective to guide you, but it's, it's more about the people um, and, and you, and you go through that story in the familiar form of a police procedural, but it's very much all about people. And I think that's the kind of detective fiction that I really like. Um, mm. So, you know, Sarah Bailey does that really well as well. She's, oh, I love a Gemma um, Woodstock series. Um, and now with The Housemate, another sort of brilliant, sort of obviously um, not uh, sort of police procedural, but um, still newspaper procedural, I don't know, whatever that's called, journalist procedural, I don't know, whatever that's called. But, yeah, so there's a yeah. number of those kind of, um, you know, authors around. So what, what can readers then expect from The Torrent, your debut? Yeah, look, I think with The Torrent um, what you are going to get is hopefully a character that you can, uh, you know, very much relate to. So I think hopefully... Um, you know, so so the, the the main character in the book, um, Kate Miles, she's she's sort of heavily pregnant when we meet her. <laughs> she is at, in her last week of work before she goes on maternity leave, and she is very much uh, in the throes of trying to manage, you know, a very successful sort of um, career which she has built up and worked really hard on. Um, but you know, obviously, her life has now changed with with um, you know having uh, you know a, a young son and also now being heavily pregnant. But she kind of is kind of managing that and probably um uh you know even to herself she probably doesn't <laughs> admit that you know now she has some restrictions to her life but she's trying to manage that so um what i wanted to create was very much a character and and, and, and a woman that you i guess you would instantly recognize you know at, this is a version of the women i see all, all, you know, in my life, you know, who are my contemporaries who are, you know, highly professionally competent but are always juggling, you know, juggling a million things. And hopefully the readers will see the women in their lives or, or they'll see themselves, you know, and, and want to kind of um, take that journey of a police procedural with a different type of protagonist, you know, um, not the entrenched yeah. trope, yeah, of the, of the sort of the male single, you know, childless detective, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, she, Kate Miles. She's a she's a world away from Harry Bosch, and I love her. Uh, it, it's also a, a stupendously atmospheric read, um, and it's it's set deep in the kind of north of the state, that uh, kind of northern rivers, uh, very humid, uh, lots of uh, you know where the where the farms meet the sea kind of area, um, and obviously. You know the title, the torrent. You know, a, a flood catalyzes this this mystery story that we follow. You know, a, a, a drowned man and 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 how that came to be. But it's 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 you 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 could have a you could have a flood almost anywhere in this country. <laughs> All of Australia floods. So so what I'm I'm curious what what drew you to that to that place and all of its kind of disparities and and quiet angsts. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually so true. And I think, you know, so I, I guess, you know, stepping back a bit, I guess that first seed of the idea, the first seed of the idea being a flood was very much, I think, from, you know, the, those huge floods that happened in sort of 2010-11 um, in South East Queensland, um, northern New South Wales, where sort of that Brisbane River flooded and those sort of, those images on the news where that, you know, that full kind of that massive river flood 
that really stayed with me. And then sort of then like a number of year, years later, when I was kind of starting to play around with ideas, that sort of popped into my head and I went, oh, wouldn't sort of like a crime involving a natural disaster and maybe a flood, you know, and that I started playing around with that, with that idea. And, and I think then when I was thinking of a setting, it just automatically went to that area, so that border region. And like I was very deliberate that I wanted to locate it in New South Wales because obviously, you know, I was taking on detective fiction and I knew, I, I just didn't want the added complexity of sort of locating it in Queensland where which I hadn't lived and then there'd be a new set of legislation, you know, things even more complicated. So, so I, I wanted it south of the border. Um, and then I had visited that area sort of over you know um in various years for various kind of work projects and uh one of the work projects that i visited uh, was in the mawillambar kondong area so that sort of and so then when i was starting to think of it <laughs> setting i was like oh hang on the tweed river floods not big there that's yeah duh. and so that's how it came about and um you know but i was very obviously uh um you know specific of making it into a fictional town it's absolutely not um, located in a specific town in that area because, you know, obviously I haven't lived in that area for any length of time. So uh, in that sense, I wanted the flexibility of a fictional town. But so it's a fictional yeah. version of that area. But just taking those kind of iconic things that make that make people go, oh, yeah, I, I know that area, you know, and, and sort of go into, yeah. It's, it's instantly recognisable. Yeah. It really is. Um, and you feel the... You feel the the heat of the place and the kind of, uh, you know, any kind of, oh, kind of anywhere near the coast is, is there's a there's a big gap between haves and have-nots and and you you just quietly kind of weave that through your story as well. There's 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 so much going on just in the region, but but yeah, your character Kate Miles, uh, I feel like I, I want to ask how how long had you been evolving her interior world um before you kind of put pen to paper on on this novel because there's there's a lot going on with her yeah i feel like there's there's stories to come from kate miles yeah look i think so i think there's definitely stories to come with kate but um look i you know i was just as i said um you know, I, I didn't think about it too much when I started writing. And I think the the issues that she's trying to grapple with are very much the issues that I was trying to grapple with at the very same um, period of my life where, you know, I was kind of in the midst of that kind of uh, navigating, um, you know, young children and home life versus sort of the obligations to your to your career and your ambitions for your career so trying to navigate that and i just thought oh, what would that look like for a police officer you know um you know <laughs> you take you know this which i find quite hard and often don't get the balance right um how would that look like for a police officer particularly for from her point of view where you know, she is still a woman in a fairly male dominated profession and so she always you know she has that automatic um, thing of having to prove herself and and making sure that, you know, people aren't sort of, you know, she, she isn't open to criticism that she's getting special treatment and that she's, you know, like she needs special rules and she's weaker and da-da-da, all of that. So she would have absorbed... In my mind, she would have absorbed all those narratives and internalised them. And so she's very much kind of acting out, not acting out, but but 
she very much has a chip on her shoulder about all those things and she's very determined to not you know have any opening for criticism on those points of view and so for her she's you know she's a person of color she's in a senior role in the police of uh, in the in the police yeah. force so all of that combines to go you know for, for her she needs to show no weakness <laughs> you know whether whether rightly or wrongly that's that's the stuff that she's internalized so yeah and 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 in every interaction she has both with the public facing aspects of her job you know dealing with um local councillors who've had their daughter accosted at the local maccas or um uh or, or or just within within the force you know dealing with you know subordinates you know the men white men who have lower ranks than her even though that they're older and had been in it for longer uh <laughs> she everywhere she turns there's there's a there's a microaggression and, and sometimes there's a macroaggression <laughs> uh really it keeps the reader on the toes as well it's it's that's part of the the intensity of this book i feel it's it's integral to it yeah look and i think i wanted sort of some of those interactions because they're not um you know in particular i think there is that kind of generational difference you know as you say there is a you know there's a certain interaction with a um a older member of the police force very close to retirement who who you know i guess there is that you know um sense of you know you go through the years and you you know you got the promotion ranks type thing and 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 there is this new generation who are coming up who you know are very much you know studying for the role and and you know and and sort of she's taken sort of um you know her detective courses and all, all the rest of it and so you know they feel like oh you know these these young people who've come out of nowhere who are they and they and they want to find i guess a reason for that you know whether you know is you know what, what is the reason is is a special treatment rather than looking at the sort of necessarily the merits of it so it's kind of finding the excuse for you know um your situation being the way it is and so kate has to navigate all of that but i want what i really wanted to place that in also in the context of that extreme loyalty that happens in the police force and, and any kind of those kind of institutions whether it's the military yeah. or you know that there is a level of you know loyalty and kind of you know you you still you still work for the team you know and, and so even though all these things are happening the reality of it is that she still kind of manages it within that context rather than necessarily calling it out in a huge way and i think that is an actual real pressure you know i mean I, that that's you know whilst we'd all like to think that we are heroes in that way i think when your job is on the line and when you're having to manage all these things it actually you end up managing a person or, or a situation and try and you know work around it um, and I think in the police force, somewhere like that, which has, I think, loyalty and, and you know, the, the force is very big, you know, that there's a cultural thing aspect to that. And I think, again, uh, I, I see her as someone who has absolutely internalised some of those things as well. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Every time I read a, a crime novel and get wonderfully outwitted by the story craft of it, um, my, the first thing I want to know is, is is how other readers are reacting to the book, and, and does it get them in the same way? Am I am I a fool for having been thwarted by um, the author's craftiness? Uh, 
and you know, this is this is a debut novel as as you as we've covered. Uh, so how how do you how, do you get friends and family to read it? How do you finesse and polish to kind of work in that trickery and and you know get the balance right of, of pulling the wool over the eyes just a little bit and then revealing it in just some most satisfying moment. Uh, how do how, how do you manage that? Um, wow. Okay, I'm not really sure to be honest. It's the first time I've done it, um, so I haven't really broken it down. To be perfectly honest, I mean, I do. I I very much knew even right at the start that I wanted two stories. You know, that were completely, you know, on the face of it, separate to sort of intermingle um, at some point. So I, I definitely I started off with that. So I knew that was going to happen, um, and I. Uh, you know, obviously no spoilers, but I had a very much the image of, of, of Kate and those final moments for her. Like that was, you know, I had that image in my head straight away before I started writing. So I, ha um, so I knew that was the end point, but how do we get to that end point? Because that will be the most tense end point for her <laughs> as a character mm. in this particular context. So um, I knew that was the end point I wanted to work towards. And I kind of, felt that even in that first draft, I kind of felt that it would make sense to kind of have one chapter basically on one story and one chapter on the other story and kind of, you know, hopefully at some point my brain would work out how they came together. Um, and in terms of, I mean, in terms of feedback, obviously, I mean, you know, I would say very much the one thing that has absolutely shaped this novel is you know, feedback and I've been incredibly lucky with, you know, many established writers who have freely given their time to kind of read through the manuscript and, you know, given me sort of that mentorship and, you know, particularly people like Emma Viskic who, you know, who runs the sort of the Twitter feedback um, thing twice a year and I was lucky enough to um, get chosen by her for that and she kind of reviewed the manuscript and gave me all sorts of things, um, feedback and her feedback was what was the version that I then submitted to the banjo, you know, like I changed the entire first chapter. Like I think the first four chapters got revised. I added a whole new character, a whole new character thread, blah, blah, blah. You know, all that came oh. with her feedback and yeah. So, you know, so I'm very incredibly lucky. I mean, not, not that she told me to do any of that. She just went, okay, well this, this bit, you know, it's not as interesting, you know, the, the pace kind of drops here. And so she told me where it stopped becoming interesting and that's the bits that you got to work out. You know, and and make yeah, it yeah right yeah so yeah I mean you you did you did you're right you did do that work yourself but um I, yeah we're blessed we're blessed as readers um as 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 well that that there's uh, such a good community of of authors particularly crime authors in Australia that that, that do that um it's you know and this novel is part of the fruit of that it's really yeah special. absolutely and, no, uh, you. You just mentioned the the banjo prize, uh, so it's a it's an unpublished manuscript award for a, a commercial fiction. How does it feel to win a literary prize before you've even published a book? Um, so it was obviously you know in this one moment all your dreams come true, but it's also absolutely terrifying, and that's you know. Uh, that's how I felt because for me, as I said, you know, like I had no ambitions of writing. This is my first book. And, and the more I got into the writing community, I realised, oh, you know, people have, people have been working on novels for ages and for years and, and have, 
you know, multiple manuscripts in their drawer. And like, so I just absolutely assumed that this was the apprenticeship novel. Um, this was not going to get picked up. I would just work on the second one and hopefully the second would get picked up and then they might look at the first one and then da, da, da. So the Banjo Prize really, for me, I had an Excel spreadsheet and I had, you know, all the publishers <laughs> and I went, okay, well, I'll send it to the Banjo because then, you know, HarperCollins will look at it and then once they reject it, I can send it to, you know, X and then, then once they, you know. And so that's what the process was. It was, it had no you know, there's no intention or, like, sort of expectation that I would win. Like, I mean, I was just mad. And so when she called to say, I, you know, I've been shortlisted, I was like, oh, cool, that's that's it. You know, that's the phone call. That's the memory I get to store away because now I've got it, you know, because now, now I can put that in my little query letter going, oh, shortlisted, you know, please, please look at this novel. <laughs> so... Yeah, I never expected to get the second phone call a week later or two weeks later, whatever it was. Um, yeah, saying I'd won. So, yeah, it's pretty, pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. <laughs> I can still see the, the huge grin on your face. It's a pleasure to see. Um, uh, I'm, I'm very excited about this book. I'm excited for people to read it because I tore through it. Um, I've also... <laughs> I've also uh, been picking up whispers that you've been contracted for more books uh, or are getting contracted for more books. Uh, will we read more Detective Kate Miles in those books? Because I would like that to be a thing. Yes. Yes. So um, half a colleagues are so lovely. They trusted me with um, two more books. So, um, so as I said, while I was querying sort of um, this manuscript which became the torrent mm. um, I was absolutely writing another one because you know I mean that's what everyone says I mean you got to write another one because otherwise it's just too stressful um, so I managed to sort of finish that draft and submit it to um, HarperCollins and they were and sorry and that is a second book of Kate Miles so it's a, it is a series and that's the you know we pick up her story and so she yeah I, I gave that to HarperCollins and they were happy with it <laughs> and we also pitched them um, a, an idea for a third book and they were happy to sort of accept it as a, as a kind of a two book thing so very very lucky um yeah no so uh yes I'll be editing book two and in theory writing book three <laughs> this year which is a nice blank page on my computer <laughs> that's uh you've you've gone from you've gone from uh unpublished novice to career author <laughs> I know, it's about, and this is the thing like it it feels like oh, I don't know it just it, it feels kind of yeah just undeserving or I don't know anyway it feels like something it feels like someone else's life and um, so I'm incredibly grateful and, and I think again it's it's that having that publisher who absolutely gets what you're trying to do and that's that that amazing magic thing where you've somehow you model through and your your book meets that publisher that it needs to do and they just get it and and they you know and they put all their support behind it and you just go well you know how did I deserve this but you know I've, I've just lucked out so yeah that's incredible match made in heaven <laughs> yeah um speaking of which uh we've now come to the less serious part of the podcast where right. um I'm gonna be <laughs> I'm gonna be talking to uh, a number of debut authors, and uh, it's Valentine's Day soon. Uh, so to make it uh, 
spicy and exciting. I've, I've, I've devised some, some perfect match style uh, dating questions for your debut novel. Um, right. So you're ready for question one. Okay. Um, if you had to pair your novel, uh, sommelier style, with, with a beverage, any beverage, could be a wild cocktail, could be just something straight out of the fridge at home, uh, what would you choose? Uh, well, <laughs> there is actually a, a line in the book about uh, Kate's Kate's lovely husband Jeff being a bit of a bit of a wine snob. <laughs> so I think didn't he choose a um, God? I can't even remember now. I think, didn't he choose a, like a uh, South American Riesling or something? <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> Argentinian. Right, yeah. That's right. <laughs> so let's go with that. Whatever, oh, whatever Jeff chose, whatever that South American um, wine was, which yeah. I can't remember now. I, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I feel can agree like or something. Yeah. Really the wine for Jeff. That's yeah, great. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay, question two. Um, where would be most suited to reading your novel? Deep in an old dusty library, on a beach, a uh, chair in a tropical paradise, or hunched over a takeaway flat white on a crowded city bus? Ooh, I'm going to say all of those things. Possibly, oh, I don't know, yeah. I mean, I would say... Tropical uh, location, definitely. Um, I'm hoping it is page turning enough that in any one of those locations, it will get you. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm going to say yeah, all well of them. <laughs> uh, this, this next question is so ridiculous, I'm afraid to ask it. Does your novel have a spirit animal? Oh, <laughs> a spirit animal. <laughs> um, the, oh, God. I don't know. What, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> I don't know. What do you mean, spirit? Animal? Oh, chicken, chicken. There's, there's chickens in the book, so there, I'll go with chicken. Oh, yeah, there's chickens. Yes. There's also chicken poop in the uh, in one scene of the book as well. Yes, so let's go with chicken because the only animal that's actually in the book, so <laughs> let's go with chicken. <laughs> okay, last question. Um, what is the ideal date for your novel? Uh, a spiritual hike in the mountains? A wild night out on the town or a home-cooked meal and a cheesy movie? Oh, definitely a home-cooked meal and a cheesy movie. Yes, that, that is me to a T, far out. If there's any excuse to stay at home, I will take it. I'm the opposite of nightlife. So, yes, so since, since I've written Kate like that, I would say, yeah, and she's in very much at a moment in time that she wouldn't be able to go out. So, yes, cheesy movie and, yeah, take away. <laughs> Danuka McKenzie, thank you very much for playing. Oh, thank you so much, Ben. That was so much fun. Thank you very much. The Torrent is published by HarperCollins and you can get a copy of it from booktopia.com.au right now. Continuing our Date with a Debut series, now over to Ben's interview with Mary Rose Koskelly. Hi, I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager. Joining me today from Melbourne over Zoom is Mary Rose Cuss-Kelly. She is a writer of both fiction and non-fiction. Her 2018 book, Wedderburn, A True Tale of Blood and Dust, was longlisted for two David Awards. And her debut novel has just been published. It's a stunning work of rural noir. It's called The Cane. Mary Rose Cuss-Kelly, thanks for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. 
Um, so for for weeks now, I haven't been able to uh, sit through a cup of tea without someone from the book world um, popping up and, and asking me, "Have you read the cane yet? Have you read the cane yet? Have you read the cane yet?" Um, and I've, I've finally sat through it and, and read it properly this weekend. I, when I got a copy weeks weeks ago, I just read the first page, right? <laughs> and in that first page, we meet a character. Um, Barbara uh, McClymon, and she has gone to the local shop in this town and bought all the big lighters and all the matches, and she stands out the front of the shop, striking every match and flicking it away um, in a sort of brilliant almost tableau of grief and horror. It's a, it's a stunning way to begin a book. What, what, why, don't, why don't you paint the picture for the reader, or the listener, I should say, uh, the, the potential reader. Uh, how, how does Barbara McClymont come to, that, um, to be in that position? Uh, Barbara's daughter, Janet, um, has disappeared. And she disappeared while she was walking through the cane fields. And... Barbara and her family, they live in a sugarcane growing district, obviously, and the harvest is about to start. And back in the 70s, everyone generally in Australia would burn the cane before they harvested. Nowadays, there's only really one place in Australia, which is around the Burdekin region in Queensland around Eyre that burned the cane. But back then, everyone would burn the cane to get rid of all the uh, excess, so they call it trash, like all the excess leaves and that sort of thing, and um, you know, kind of to drive out all the rats and things like that. And Barbara believes her daughter is dead, but she is desperate to find her daughter's body, and she's afraid that if the farmers nearby burn the cane, then she will never get to, I guess, hold her daughter again, even, even her dead daughter. And Barbara is, Barbara and her family are kind of like they're blow-ins. They've only been living in the area about six months or so. And so I guess Barbara has this kind of wild, completely unrealistic hope that she can stop the sugar crush, which is what um, happens after the harvest. She can stop the crush happening by, you know, just getting rid of all the matches. Running through the matches. It's, yeah. it's a desperate <laughs> attempt, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's, yeah. it's wonderful that, that we join, that we join um, a, a search or a, a thriller where um, the person has already been missing for weeks and days and it's like... The, the dread has already set in. So the original kind of drama of the surge and the disappearance has already been lived in the town. Yeah. And now, you know, the journalists are kind of rusted on. The cops are out of ideas. They've got no leads. They've turned up nobody. Uh, and it's stinking hot in northern Queensland. People are angry. Um, and it's just this horrible mood of depression <laughs> and angst it's a and and that just grabs the reader from the first page and you're 
you're hooked from there. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you, from what I understand that you've taken an interest in that region and particularly in the 1970s there were disappearances and there were true events that kind of inspired you to write this so yeah. so could you tell me what, what's behind the inspiration yeah so i grew up in queensland and i mean i grew up in the southeast corner which is quite a long way from where um the cane is mm. set and also where there were several disappearances of young children and young women in that 70s time and over the years they had kind of blended and i couldn't they, they kind of just blended into one i wasn't quite sure um you know i was kind of get the the disappearances and the events mixed up and then so when i started thinking about writing something about it um initially i was thinking something uh non-fiction and i began to you know trawl through the newspapers from that time and the one disappearance um that really had stuck with me was a young girl called marilyn wallman who disappeared in the 70s and through you know in the cane fields and so and because i guess i was a country kid um walking to school and i just remember and because marilyn was on her way to school when she went missing that it just um, kind of seeped in. And I think I remember it was probably my mother's anxiety and that sort of thing around us walking to school. So it had just stayed with me for a long time. And periodically things would come up in the news about Marilyn Warman because it was a very, um, it was a major event around Mackay. And, and because the, it was never solved, the um, like who actually took Marilyn and it and in fact it was only in 2015 that um, they were able to finally determine that a piece of bone that had been found some years after she went missing had belonged to her so her family didn't have a funeral for her until 2015 and wow. so I also I was thinking about writing it as nonfiction, and then I kind of realized that a lot of the things I was interested in I could explore better in fiction. And some of those just related to my own memories and about being a child and growing up in a um, rural community. And also I just wanted to have a bit of fun, well, not fun exactly, but just to have to explore that time of the seventies because it was such a um, time of social and cultural change you know, politically and all that sort of stuff as well. So I wanted, um, and also I was interested in this idea, this kind of gothic idea of menace in the landscape as well. And so fiction just presented itself as a better way um, to explore some of those things. Mm, yeah, that, that oppressive heat and those burning cane fields at night um, really do, um, tick the box for really evocative fiction. Um, why don't you take me through the characters that are at the heart of this story? It's, um, it's, it's really impressive as a work of fiction because it's, yeah, it's a, it's a debut novel for you, but it's, it's, it's fully fledged in terms of um, multiple perspectives and um, 
different aspects of this town and the people that are, are surrounding this disappearance. Uh, I love Essie. I love Fanta Pants, as I like to call him. <laughs> <laughs> he does not like to be called. And I love um, would, Carmel. To be fair. I, I, can't, I, <laughs> I, I can't imagine a more difficult gig uh, than being a, a female uh, police officer in the 1970s in, in rural northern Queensland yeah. um, with a failed, uh, what they would call it a manhunt, even though it's <laughs> even though it's a girl that's gone missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, take me through these characters. Uh, they're, they're all brilliant. Oh, thank you. Look, that was kind of one of the... <laughs> One of the, I suppose, I don't know, I, I just kind of naturally wanted to write it from different perspectives. So, and I did have to kind of wrangle those voices a bit, particularly as, um, as we were revising the novel with the editor. But um, so there's a first person voice, which is Arthur, who was kind of a, um, you know, he's a older man and he's kind of, you know, he, he has a more to, a more broader view of the whole community and the history of the place and what's gone before. And so through Arthur, I guess we get that more expansive view. Then we have Essie who I love Essie too. Essie's 11. Um, She knew Janet who has gone missing. Janet used to babysit her and her sister. And Essie's just in that kind of delicate age where she's still a kid but, you know, adulthood and adolescence is approaching and she kind of desperately wants to make that leap. But she's got a very protective um, mother who has become more protective, obviously, in the wake of um, Janet's disappearance. Um, And then Essie uh, befriends this girl, Raylene. So Raylene's, she comes to town after uh, Janet's gone missing and Raylene's a little bit older but because of just how she's grown up, she's still at primary school. But she, she and Essie kind of sets her cap in a way at Raylene. Like she wants Raylene to be her friend and she wants to kind of, she suspects Raylene knows a lot of stuff about all sorts of things and Essie wants to know it too. And Raylene has the, is um, she's privy to a lot of information because her dad has bought the pub. So Raylene, you know picks up a lot from the pub. Um, Eamon, or Fanta Pants, what his school students call him, he's, um, you know, he's come up from Brisbane to teach. He's a newly uh, qualified teacher. Eamon's got, you know, he's been, he's politically um, awakened. He's, you know, he's on board for women's liberation. He's been protesting against the um, South African rugby team's tour. He's, And he sees, he's a bit resentful of where he's found himself and he's got hopes of going to London. But he would also like to, you know, make his mark a bit um, at the school that he's in. So he kind of, so he gets hold of some copies of the Little Red School book, which was this um, kind of just, it was not much more than a pamphlet, but it was written by these Danish school teachers in the... um, late 60s and it was translated into you know hundreds of different languages I think and it was about giving young people 
not just information about sex and drugs, but that was kind of what um, people who were alarmed by it focused on, but also just about questioning authority and taking control of their own lives and, um, you know, just, you know, standing up to the man a bit. And so Eamon gets some of these um, copies and he's going to give them to his students, but that all goes a little bit wrong. Um, there's also Joe, who is who was Janet's boyfriend, and um, Janet's so Joe's mother. She's a descendant of the um, South Sea Islanders who were brought to work in the cane fields, and his father is um, is also he's, he is a cane farmer. And so there, the, but then there's also, I mean, I could, I could go on. There is quite a few characters. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge, it's a huge cast of characters for this little yeah. town. Uh, uh, and, and it's, um, it's impressive that you, you can achieve balance and that you can follow the different voices. Mm. Uh, I, I can only imagine there was, there would have been a lot of revision, a lot of drafting where you've kind of had to, go back and go, okay, I need more of yeah. Eamon here and I need less of Essie in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly I, I, um, I, needed, I needed more of um, Carmel, who's the um, police the uh, policewoman, and I also needed a bit more of Barbara, who is Janet's mother. Um, mm. Yeah. So there were... Yeah, yeah Barbara, Barbara, Barbara remains an enigma to me, like right through that book. Um, from that first page when you hear about her striking the matches when you you get these kind of um, visions of her at home on the balcony when Carmel goes to visit her and question her or, or, or inspect the daughter's room, Janet's room. Mm. She's, she's just a, a ghost of a person almost and, and her husband um, is, is convinced that his daughter's still alive and well somewhere that's wow that's that's heartbreaking yeah. <laughs> um i found a, a a lot of interest in all of these characters um and you also mentioned joe and and the kind of more expansive view he has uh um you, you actually take readers on a tour of the ecology and the geography of this landscape um and the history of like rural Queensland and cane farming and Queensland. And it's not all a pretty history, is it? No. And that was, I suppose, one thing I was kind of interested in talking about in the book. You know, it happens frequently when something terrible happens in a community, usually in a small community, and people will say, oh, well, you know, I remember, well, you know, like, Tasmania's lost its innocence when there was a terrible massacre in, um, down at Port Arthur. And it's like, was Tasmania innocent before that event? Like, there's a lot of bad stuff has gone on in Tasmania, you know, before that terrible massacre, you know, what with, you know, Aboriginal people being driven off and killed, you know, convicts being brutalised. Like it wasn't, it wasn't that one massacre that made that that cost Tasmania mm. its, its innocence. And I guess, you know, there are a few places in Australia, 
I think that you could say uh, innocent in, in, in that way. And so I guess I did want to look at, yes, those kind of what, what those um, accumulated desecrations or atrocities, I don't know, do to a, a landscape, I suppose. So it's a little bit fa fanciful, I guess, and it's a bit, I suppose when I talked about, you know, it's kind of there's something gothic in that notion, I suppose, but um, it was something I was just interested in slipping in there as part of the, the wider novel. Yeah, and it also boils itself into the, the attitudes of the townsfolk. The, yeah, yeah. The hostility to women and non-whites in this uh, community is, is, is really palpable. Uh, and those prejudices read really cleanly and, well, not cleanly, but, but they, they read believably for, for those characters. And that's, um, I, I imagine that must be a, a hard thing to do for a novelist. It's got to be a challenge to, to write that in a way that is not uh, ridiculous or, or uh, uh, just uh, um, in, in a way that you, know, you can sort of step back from it and, and get, get what you need to get onto the page. How, how, do, you, how do you sit with trying to write that particular nasty dialogue and things? Yeah, um, well, actually, I was, I was talking, I don't know, I forget who exactly, to, about someone who had read the novel and was saying, was it really, like, was there really that kind of level of sexism or racism, racism in Queensland in the 1970s? I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like, I don't think I've over-egged anything. Um, and a lot of it... You know, a lot of those kind of, you know, casual remarks and casual misogyny or casual racism, I'm, it's kind of quite, I feel it, it's quite, fam, like, it's, I feel like it's quite familiar. I feel like it's quite, um, like, I didn't have to kind of drag it out or kind of, oh, what would, some, you know, it, some of those remarks, you like, you know, I've heard those remarks. I was told those remarks. I was, you know, I remember... I remember being in an economics class in year 12 in, at my high school and our economics teacher, you know, who was a Catholic priest, but anyway, you know, say, you know talking about how um, women were less productive workers because once a month, you know, they sometimes had to take time off work. And I was kind of like, and this was just, so it was, I took it in <laughs> as a young person, like, so... Um, yeah, I, I, and I went to a, I went to a boarding school and there were lots of, um, country kids and as well as kids from PNG, it wasn't like kind of a posh boarding school. It was, um, you know, so lots of kids from Western Queensland, the, you know, indigenous kids, like I said, kids from PNG and like, we were like, we were just kind of clueless and ignorant, you know, all us. I don't know, white, you know, kids like me, white kids. So but you'd um, hear it all. <laughs> yeah. So um, I don't know. I guess, yeah, I just feel, I don't think it, it was exaggerated what I've written. And I certainly feel like it's, yeah, it's kind of, I feel like it's authentic to my experience when I was a young person growing up in Queensland. Yeah. Um, uh, for research, did you, did you make it up? 
to those kind of cane communities in, in the north? Uh, and um, if so, how have they changed today? Yeah, I went up, um, I actually had, um, when I had start, first started thinking about writing something, I had gone up to Mackay and then I was going to go up again when I had finally committed to write, it's going to be a novel, but then of course COVID happened. So I just had to do a bit of YouTubing and remember things. Um, look, it's much um, Mackay, well, so around the area, like it's quite, um, like there's still cane fields everywhere. Um, but there's a bit more urban sprawl and I mean, like any, anywhere, I guess, um, places is a bit more, you know, it, it's, it's not as, it's not as some um, kind of, it doesn't have that feel of the badlands. <laughs> like, like when mm. I, like years ago, there's a stretch of road between, um, Rockhampton and Serena and it was called the horror stretch because Partly because the wow. um, the road it was such a terrible like it was a it was part of the you know the um, Princess Highway, and it was just like a it was a terribly maintained road. It was quite um, there wasn't much there weren't many houses or townships or anything either side of it, and there was just um, you know there were kind of you know you, if you were driving up there people would say don't stop on the horror stretch or you know, don't stop on the serena stretch and you'd kind of there was this and it had a reputation for you know car you know one vehicle car accidents and you know there had been kind of murders and bodies found i've had all that kind of thing or you know lights in the distance so there was this kind of north queensland did have a bit of a you know badlands um reputation and also just you know that time Joe Bajelke Peterson was, um, you know, he kind of encouraged that idea of that, you know, like Queenslanders were a race apart, you know, and he was always threatening to su succeed, for Queensland to secede from the Commonwealth and stuff like that. And so there was this, a bit of an idea of Queenslanders were different and that was just more um, exaggerated the further north you went. And I think that's changed a bit. Right. I'm sure there are still um, pockets of it, but yeah, I think that's, it's, you know, it, there are nice bars and restaurants and all the rest of it. And, um, but it, I think it's still, there is still probably a little bit of that, but I was, people were very nice to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, but um, it's, yeah. So now, now that you've got uh, uh, nonfiction and fiction under the belt, um, what have been the surprises for, uh, you're writing a novel for the first time. Uh, what? How is it different? And will you do it again? <laughs> Look, it was um, it was different. Like you know, I think writing fiction's actually much more difficult. Nonfiction, you know, you just kind of have to follow the story. Or I mean, of course, you have to shape it. And you know, in the end, you know, you choose what you write and what things that you. Mm. Um, you know, where, where you place things and things like that. But I did find fiction more of a challenge. And in fact, you know, the manuscript that I first delivered to the publisher, and because I didn't really, I wasn't thinking of it as crime fiction. I kind of had this idea that it was more, you know, it was more in that tradition within Australia of the... Um, of the lost child, you know, that kind of, you know, going back to, you know, Frederick McCubbin's painting of 
called Lost and there's this young girl, you know, standing in a eucalypt forest or by herself or just, or even things like, you know, Picnic at Hanging Rock or, you know, Dot and the Kangaroo. That, so I didn't really, and I was kind of trying to avoid calling it crime fiction because I just wasn't, because it was my first novel, it's like, I don't know if I've got the writing chops to write a crime novel that's got, you know, all those elements that people expect. Yeah. But, but the publisher and then the editor both said to me, it's crime and you, you just have to accept that it's crime and, you know, write it like crime. So, so I had a really good editor who was able to kind of just um, point out some things to me that in kind of retrospect were kind of like obvious, like just in terms of the plot and, um, you know, just bringing the characters closer to the reader and things like that. So that was really useful. So the, so the, so the novel is quite, I mean, the, the bones were there in the original manuscript, but it has, it did, um, I did do quite a lot of revision with it. Um, and I did love it doing it. Um, and I have started working on another novel, but this, it's urban, it's set in an urban and it's more contemporary. Mm. Um, I don't think it's a crime novel, but, <laughs> but maybe it is, I don't know. Um, but I would like to get back to nonfiction as well. I do, I do love nonfiction. I think uh, people will read you what, whatever you do next. Oh. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, Mary Rose Cuss-Kelly, thank you for uh, your time today and for being on the podcast. Um, we now have our ridiculous questions, if oh, you're okay. ready for them. Yeah. Um, so we're doing a perfect match thing. Uh, it's, 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 it's a bit of a, it's a, a blind date with a debut, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to ask some dating style questions. Uh, All right. So. If, if you had to pair your novel, The Cane, uh, familiar style with, with a beverage, uh, had to be oh, served with a beverage, uh, a, 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 any kind of, you know, posh wine or a cocktail or just something from the fridge at home, what would, you, what would be your pairing? <laughs> Look, I kind of want to say rum and coke. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I think rum and coke. I am going to say rum and coke. Yeah, that, that <laughs> makes good sense to me. Um, what would be the location most suited to reading your novel? Um, in an armchair in the back of a dusty old library, uh, in a tropical beach paradise, slung in a hammock, or hunched over a takeaway flat white on a crowded inner city bus? Mm. Look, if, if you wanted to go for the whole you know, experience, it's probably, you know, it's North Queensland, obviously. Uh, you know, maybe it's just under a tree somewhere, but, you know, beside a cane field. <laughs> beside a cane field. <laughs> yeah. Very specific. It's good. Um, uh, this is the more ridiculous question of them all. Uh, does your novel have a spirit animal? Oh. Look, again, I feel like I would need, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do myself or the novel any favour by saying a cane toad. <laughs> but... <laughs> a cane toad, yeah. Or, or something like a taipan snake. Actually, yeah, maybe um, a taipan. Maybe a taipan, 
with a cane toad in with his a mouth. cane toad. <laughs> <Scott. laughs> okay, final ridiculous question. Uh, what is the ideal date for your novel? Is it a spiritual hike in the mountains, or a wild night of dancing in the city, or a home cooked meal and a cheesy movie um, at home on the couch? Look, I think it's a. Uh, look, I think it's a country style pub, but in the front bar, and um, oh, counter tea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what it is. I love that, Mary Rose Cuscali. Thank you for playing. Oh, <laughs> my absolute pleasure, Ben. Thank you. The Cane is published by Alan and Omlin, and you can get a copy of it right now from Booktopia.com.au. Thanks to Danuka McKenzie and Mary Rose Koskelly. You can find links to all the books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au. Stay tuned on Friday for our next podcast where we'll be discussing the books that we are reading at the moment and join us next week for the second episode in this duology series, A Date with a Debut. As always, thanks for listening and never stop reading. <laughs>